of this uh, chapter together, beginning in verse 7. just like to let you know, for those of you that are pining for David Roper, that he will be back next week. He was gone for two weeks attending a conference, and then this past week was invited by the leadership of Peninsula Bible Church to conduct the memorial service this afternoon for Ray Stedman. And our elders wanted to give him the freedom to accept that uh, privilege and participate in that ministry, so he uh, will be back with us again next Sunday. This past summer, James Dobson reissued his book, uh, Dare to Discipline, updated for the 90s. And once again, it focused our attention on the issue of how parents are to deal with misbehaving children. And it's instructive that in this section that we are going to look at this morning, Paul is writing to the Corinthians as his beloved children, and he is writing to them, he tells us, in the end of this chapter, as their father, giving them words of fatherly counsel, and then at the end... uh, communicating to them that he is prepared as their father to discipline them for their misbehavior. And we'll see as we get to that paragraph in just a few moments, I think, some very helpful insights and lessons and principles about disciplining our children as fathers and and mothers. But before Paul gets to that point, he needs to finish dealing with the misbehavior that is his concern in the Corinthian church. He is bringing his argument that has occupied him for the first four chapters of Corinthians to its climax in this section. The concern that Paul has for the Corinthian church is that they were making decisions and evaluations about believers, other believers, and particularly about Christian leaders on the basis of criteria which were very shallow and very superficial. What he observed about the Corinthian church is that they had developed a certain list of criteria by which they evaluated anyone who was in Christian leadership. And they had developed something of a profile that they expected every mature Christian leader to fit. And there were certain things on this profile which were external in in nature. They had a profile that evaluated a Christian leader on the basis of his status in, in the community, the sort of position that he occupied in the community. And They evaluated Christian leaders based on how they dressed and whether their shoes were scuffed or polished, uh, what kind of education they had, how articulate and eloquent they seemed to be, how polished and sophisticated they happened to be. And the Corinthian church had begun to elevate Christian leaders who had these certain external characteristics and to begin to look with disdain and contempt on anyone in Christian ministry or leadership that didn't fit their profile. Now, part of the problem that Paul is dealing with here is that he himself did not fit their profile. He wasn't nearly as articulate and persuasive and powerful as Apollos was or Cephas was. He looked badly in comparison to them. He wasn't as educated as some who were in lay leadership in the Corinthian church. He wasn't nearly as polished as they were. Uh, His wardrobe, as we'll see in a few moments, wasn't drawn from Brooks Brothers. It was drawn from the Salvation Army. And the many in the Corinthian church had dismissed Paul because of they had evaluated him on the basis of these very shallow criterion, and he didn't measure up. And so Paul finds it necessary to rebuke them for their tendency to evaluate other Christians on such a shallow basis. He begins his argument in verse 7. He says to the Corinthian church, Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive... And if you did receive it, 
Why do you boast as though you did not? Paul asks a question in this verse of the Corinthians. What do you have, he says, that you did not receive? Now, the answer to that question is nothing. He says the things that you have as a church that distinguish you from other believers, the things that you have that distinguish you as a church from other churches are things that have been given to you by God. There is nothing that distinguishes you. There's nothing that marks you out, he says to the Corinthians, for which you can take any credit. See, everything that you have, you have received as a gift from God. So Paul goes on to say, then why do you boast about these things? Why do you elevate yourselves in your own estimation? Why do you uh, treat others with an attitude of superiority based on the things that you possess as a church when all of those things are a gift to you? There's nothing that you possess, Paul says, that you did not receive. I think this is an extremely helpful lesson that Paul is communicating to us here. There may be things that distinguish this church from other churches. There may be things that distinguish you from other people. There may be certain gifts and talents and capacities and abilities that you possess that other people around you do not. Now, Paul's question is, what of those things that you have that you might be inclined to take pride in and to boast in and to elevate yourselves over other people on the basis of those things, what of those things that you have do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. Every talent, gift, every ability, every accomplishment, every achievement, if we analyze it carefully, we realize that ultimately it is a gift to us from God. My mother-in-law lives with us and she occasionally on holidays will invite her family down to her apartment and she used to tell our children stories. She's a very gifted storyteller and one of the stories that she told us was about a young girl who sat down at dinner one night and there was this beautiful, tasty, steaming, aromatic loaf of bread that, that her mother served her for dinner. She so much enjoyed this loaf of bread that she thanked her mother profusely and her mother said, well, I appreciate that, sweetheart, but but I bought this at the store. Maybe you should go and thank the owner of the store. So the, the girl trots off to the store and she finds the owner of the store and says, I just want to thank you for that wonderful loaf of bread that you sold to my mother. The store owner says, well, I appreciate that, but, but really I got that from the baker. Maybe you should go and find him and, and, and thank him. And so she trots off and she finds the baker and she just thanks the baker for baking such a wonderful loaf of bread. And, the baker says, well, I appreciate that, but you know, I got the grain for that bread from the farmer. Maybe you should go and thank him. And so she trots off and finds the farmer. And, and she thanks the farmer for growing the grain that, that the baker was, was able to use to make such a wonderful loaf of bread. And, and the farmer says to her, well, I appreciate that, but you need to understand something. I have no power to make that seed grow. God is the only one who can make that seed grow. God is the only one who can make the rain fall to water that crop. And God is the only one who can make the sun shine to, to nurture it to life. And see, that's Paul's point. Everything that we have about us that we, that we value, that we prize, that may mark us out in some way as individuals or as a church fellowship from other people, all of those things ultimately are a gift to us from God. And therefore, it's inappropriate for us to take any sort of credit for these things. Now, Paul says that's a real critical thing to understand. And see, what Paul is helping us to understand is what biblical humility really is. 
Many people think that humility is taking an artificially dim view of your gifts and abilities. As C.S. Lewis pointed out, this is this has led many beautiful women to try to convince themselves that they're ugly, and clever men to trying to convince themselves that they they are fools. Paul says that's not biblical humility. Part of biblical humility is having an honest evaluation of ourselves, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but neither does it mean taking an artificially low view of, of the gifts and talents that we possess. Rather, biblical humility recognizes those gifts, those things that may mark us out, and then is filled not with an attitude of self-congratulation, but filled with gratitude to the giver of this gift. And so that's what Paul says in the very beginning of the verse. Who, he says to the Corinthians, makes you different from anyone else? I think what Paul is acknowledging by that is there were some things that were different about the Corinthian church. As he said in chapter 1, the Corinthian church was the most gifted of all of the churches that Paul ministered among. He says, you do not lack any spiritual gift. As far as we know, he never said that about another church. But Paul says, who is the one that makes you different? Well, the answer to that question is God. And that's what keeps us, see, from comparing ourselves to other people and and looking down on them. C.S. Lewis pointed out in another place, if we are looking down on other people, we can't see anything that is above us. We cannot recognize that those those gifts come from the Father above. Now, as Paul moves on into verses 8 through uh, 13, we will see that he will use a, a tone of sarcasm in some of the things that he says. And I think he is using sarcasm as a sharply pointed pen to pop the the bubble of their pride and their arrogance. Let's read verses 8 through 13 together. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment... We have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. At the beginning of this uh, paragraph, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for their exaggerated estimate of their own spiritual progress and maturity. They saw themselves as, as self-satisfied, as, as wealthy, as, as rulers in life. And Paul says this represents a gross over-exaggeration of the level that you have reached. Evidently, the Corinthians had reached a place where they saw themselves on a lofty plateau. They saw themselves at a point that was beyond the point that even Paul could take them. They had become kings without Paul's help. 
Their attitude seemed to be that Paul's teaching was fine as far as it went, but in order to really go to the next step, we had to turn to other teachers. And Paul addressed that at the beginning of chapter 3, if you remember, explaining to them that, that he did feed them milk and not solid food, but that's because they weren't ready yet for the solid food. Now, when Paul says, how I wish that you really had become kings, I It's difficult to understand some of what Paul is saying here in this section, but let me share with you how I understand what what Paul is is saying here. I think what Paul recognized in the Corinthians is they had developed this very shallow and very distorted view of what Christian maturity and Christian leadership looks like. In other words, the view that the Corinthians had developed is that spiritual maturity spiritual leadership, if it's genuine, will be accompanied by certain external blessings, certain external manifestations, certain external marks. You will be able to recognize someone who is truly gifted as a true leader by these things that will accompany them, certain external marks by which God will bless them and clearly identify them as leaders. And by contrast to Paul's own example, we begin to see what some of these things were. The Corinthians felt that those who were to be respected would be those that had white-collar jobs, who had had positions of of influence and status in the community. Paul insists, we work with our own hands. You can look at my hands and you'll see grease under my fingernails. The Romans and the Greeks despised manual labor at this time. And that the Corinthians had bought into that view of the world, that that, uh, someone who was marked out as a real leader, someone to look up to and someone to elevate in the Christian community would would have a white-collar job and wear a three-piece suit to work. And there was something about their wardrobe that would distinguish them. They would dress in a way that was kind of classy or or elegant or, or sophisticated. And their shoes would be polished and their pants would always be creased and they would always have outfits that were color-coordinated and so forth. And, and uh, they had applied that in their evaluation to people. Paul says, we don't qualify. We go around uh, in rags. And the Corinthians figured that someone who was a mature Christian in leadership ought to have a certain level of polish and education and sophistication. And Paul, by contrast, was not uh, polished and not sophisticated and not highly educated. And uh, he goes on to say that the Corinthian church had developed a mindset that leaders would be in the Christian church would be honored in the community, that unbelievers would treat them with respect and with admiration, and that was one of the marks that would go along with spiritual leadership. And Paul says, quite in contrast to that, we're slandered, we're persecuted, and we are cursed. In fact, Paul says, if you were going to use an analogy to describe us as apostles, the analogy of a king really wouldn't be accurate. It would be better to describe us as prisoners of war. That's the point of the analogy that he uses in verse 9, that we are like men who are at the end of the procession and condemned to die in the arena. What Paul is alluding to here is when a Roman general would go off to war and win a mighty conquest for the empire, he would be treated to a ticker tape parade through the streets of Rome. And he would be carried on a sedan chair and all his battle regalia and his generals would accompany him through the streets and the victorious soldiers would follow in their wake and priests would be swinging censer pots that would fill the streets of Rome with this wonderful aromatic uh, smell and the people would be cheering and showering these victorious soldiers with confetti and uh, honoring them and and, uh, loudly proclaiming their name and their triumphs. And then at the end of this ticker tape parade, at the end of this procession, would would come the prisoners of war, those who had been taken captive in this battle. 
and they would be manacled and they would be dressed in rags and they would be shuffling along at the end of this procession and the people knew that that these men were headed to death. These were the vanquished enemy and so the the crowds would would begin to jeer and boo and, and hiss these prisoners who made up the end of the procession. And many of them would be taken into the arena in the Colosseum, and there they would duel to the death. They would fight to the death for the entertainment of the, of the emperor and 100,000 spectators. And Paul says that really would be the best analogy to describe what we apostles are like. And that was part of the contrast. There were many in the Corinthian church who were honored in the Corinthian community, and therefore they looked down on anyone who was dishonored by the world. And there were many in the Corinthian church who were in positions of lay leadership, who were highly educated, and they looked down on any who didn't have the same level of education. And there were many in the Corinthian church and lay leadership that were very charismatic personalities, and therefore they looked down on anyone in leadership who was not. And therefore they had developed this attitude of contempt for Paul. In fact, he gets toward the end of this section, and he says, We are the scum of the earth. The refuse of the world. And about this time, as Paul gets to that, and he starts saying, Paul, what is this scum of the earth business? Lighten up. You know, what kind of self-concept is that? We need to get you a book on self-esteem and have you study up on that. Read Leo Buscegli or something like that. Get your head straight. But see, Paul is not saying that we see ourselves as the scum of the earth. Paul is not talking about his self concept here. He's not talking about the way in which he views himself, but he's talking about the way in which the world views him. The way the earth and the world looks at him as scum, as, as refuse. Paul uses a very vivid word here. Literally, it's the off-scouring of the world. You know, if you bake something in a, in a saucepan or a fry pan or a crock pot and you get done and you pour that out, you've got stuff that is left around the edges, Right? And sometimes you have to scrape that burned-on stuff off with a Brillo pad. And that's what Paul is referring to here. We're the off-scouring of the world. The world has the same view of us apostles as they do of the stuff that you scrape off the side of a, of a saucepan. That's how they view us. I read a story uh, several years ago of a woman who wanted to remind her husband of a weekly chore that he was in the habit of forgetting, and she was in a hurry. And so as she raced out the door, she grabbed the post-it, and she left this note on the door for him, and all it said was, Mike, garbage. And uh, when she got home from work that day, he had left the post-it for her, and all it said was, you're not so hot yourself. (laughs) But see, what Paul is saying is that is how the world views us apostles, the, the ones who have been commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus Christ himself. Rather than being honored and respected among non-believers, we, we are regarded as garbage. And so he's saying to the Corinthians, you need to realize that Christian maturity and leadership has worked out this way for us, and it may work out this way for you. Now, see, I believe secretly all of us uh, hope that the Christian life works like the Corinthians thought it worked. In fact, I think Paul even wished it worked out that way also. That's why he says, how I wish that you really had become king so that we might be kings with you. We'd much rather be in a position where we enjoyed universal admiration and respect. Nobody likes to be treated as the scum of the earth. So Paul says, I wish that the Christian life worked out like this also. And see, I think secretly all of us have that that hope. 
that as we increase in maturity, that we can expect that our life will be characterized by increasing prosperity and increasing stability and increasing wealth and and increasing respect in the eyes of the world around us. We honestly do want our stature to grow in the eyes of God. But at the same time, we want our stature to grow in the eyes of men. And we can be deceived into thinking that this is what we can expect to be true of us. That as we grow in maturity, we will also grow in the respect of the world around us. Now, believers want to be salt and light. We do want to make a difference in our world. But it is easy for us to be deceived into trying to protect and preserve a certain image in the eyes of unbelievers around us. Andre Agassi has made millions of dollars convincing us that image is everything. I think we as believers can tend to to buy some of that, even though we would disavow that in theory. In fact, we can at times live like that. We can be so concerned with the way we are perceived by non-Christians, so concerned that we preserve a certain image of respect and appeal in their eyes, that we will bend over backwards to do anything to avoid doing or saying anything that would be controversial, doing or saying anything that would arouse criticism or reject a rejection in the eyes of the world around us. Because we want to be thought of, we want to be respected, we want to be well thought of, and we want to be admired. And It's easy for us then out of our concern to protect this, this image, to, to shrink from from standing for the truth and and, and taking that kind of risk. Avoid doing anything that would arouse ridicule or contempt uh, in the part of the people uh, around us. And that's really the kind of thing that Paul is dealing with here. This is what has led a number of churches to back away from exercising church discipline altogether. Because to exercise church discipline, to publicly censure a sinning believer can arouse such a firestorm of criticism in the community that that churches, many churches, simply do not want to take that risk. And so they will back away from following the Lord in obedience. That's something we as a church fellowship need to be aware of. The time may come when this church will be publicly criticized in this community and attacked and vilified and accused of being harsh and judgmental and unkind and, and unforgiving and abusive for exercising church discipline. And many churches, under the threat of that kind of reaction from the community at large, will simply back away altogether. Same thing can happen to the church and believers with regard to social issues. I'm sure as this campaign has developed that in your place of business, in your neighborhood, moral issues have surfaced at one time or another. And I think all of us experience that that tendency to kind of pull our punches because we don't want to say anything that would rock the boat. We don't want to take a stand and in our place of business that might be rejected by the, the people around us who are not believers as we are. And so we can effectively be silenced and, and neutralized by, by our fear and intimidated in, in, into being silent when we should take a stand. Now, Paul does not say we are to go out of our way, you realize, to arouse this kind of reaction in people. And we're not to be abrasive or obnoxious In fact, Paul says that when people do treat us obnoxiously, we answer kindly. When we are cursed, uh, we respond with a blessing. When 
When we are persecuted, we patiently endure it rather than lashing out or fighting back. And when we are slandered, when people accuse us of things that are simply not true, uh, we answer kindly. We try, try to appeal to them. So we never lash out or, or strike back. And I think secretly what most of us hope is that if we never do that, if we never act abrasively or obnoxiously, that everybody in the world will like us and everybody in the world will respect us. I think what Paul is saying is that the time may come when you will have to make a choice. My guess is the time at some point or another is going to come for every one of us in this room where we are going to have to make a choice. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we prepared to be ostracized? Are we prepared to be rejected? Are we prepared to be isolated because we have taken a stand for Christ or a stand for the truth? Uh, My family and I participated in the life chain uh, a couple of weeks ago, and in the course of that afternoon, we had a number of people who drove by uh, my family as we stood there on the sidewalk, and they uh, gave us a certain hand signal, uh, the point of which was not to tell us that we were number one uh, in their hearts. And, and, and Paul is saying is that that kind of thing may happen to you, and my guess is that probably all of us at some point or another are going to be placed in a position where we are going to have to make that choice the choice between protecting our reputation, protecting our image in the eyes of the world, or standing for righteousness and standing for truth. And that's a good question to ask ourselves. When the choice comes down to my reputation or God's righteousness, what am I prepared to do? Now, Paul goes on in verses 14 through 21 to tell them how he is handling this circumstance as their father. And I believe as we read through this, we can identify ten principles of discipline that I think all of us as fathers and as parents can learn from that's found here in Paul's example. Paul says in verse 14, I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? I want to look at Paul's example as a father to these spiritual children and draw some lessons for disciplining our biological children, the children in our family, from Paul's example. See the way that he dealt with his spiritual children in Corinth and learn from that lessons about how we can deal with our our own children when it comes to issues of discipline. Paul says in in verse 15 that you have 10,000 guardians. The word he uses for for guardian there is a, a word that referred to a slave who had certain child care responsibilities, was kind of a custodian for the child and would would take the child to school and pick the child up and bring the child home from school and was responsible for some of the nurture and the care for that child. 
And Paul says, you may have 10,000 people like that in your church fellowship who will use their spiritual gifts to encourage you and, and to nourish you and to contribute to your growth, but you will always only have one father. And I am still your father, and I am speaking to you as a father. And that's one lesson, I think, the first principle that we see about discipline that, that comes out of this passage is that, is that a father is responsible to set the tone of discipline in the home. This is a responsibility that Paul accepted readily and willingly as their father. He realized it was his responsibility as a father to set the tone for discipline in the home. This is not a responsibility which is simply to be handed over lock, stock, and barrel to a mother in the family. Fathers to be involved, so involved in his family and with his children that he is able to set the pace, set the tone for the family. I don't think it's wise for... All discipline to be deferred to the father. I don't think it's good for mothers to constantly say to their children, just wait till your father gets home. That makes children really want to run and greet their dad as he comes in the door after, after work. And I, but I do believe that when fathers are present, that it is their responsibility to exercise discipline and to take care of discipline issues when they arise. So that responsibility is shared. A mother, by the nature of things, will will perhaps take care of most discipline issues that arise. But a father, when he is present in the home, is to take care of this. A father is to set the tone. Now, second thing that we see here is Paul addresses these Corinthians as his dear children. He uses the word agape. These are the children whom I love with an agape kind of love. So as he writes to them, this is not, not out of an expression of rejection or anger, but out of love. And this is the second principle that we see about about discipline is that is, is to be an expression of love. It is to proceed out of a father's love for his children. That the atmosphere and the dynamic that is to characterize his relationship with his children is one of love. And discipline is an expression of that love for his children. There are many child experts today who will tell parents that if you love your child, you will never spank them. Nothing could be further from the truth. Discipline is a proper expression of love. That's why in our household we never say to our children, uh, I love you, but I must discipline you. It creates the appearance that there's something inconsistent or contradictory between discipline and love. No, I think what's appropriate for parents to say to their children is because I love you so much, I must discipline you. Now, a third thing we see here is Paul says, I am not writing this to shame you. In other words, Paul says, my purpose in doing this is not to embarrass you. Literally, the, the Greek means to hang your head. I don't want you to hang your head and kind of mope around with a hangdog look on your face. That's not the reason I'm writing to this. I think that is the third principle that we see in discipline, is that we are to avoid disciplining our children in a way that embarrasses them or humiliates them or, or shames them. <clears throat> I'm surprised at the number of parents who think that ridicule of a child is a form of discipline. It most definitely is not. It simply humiliates a child. So we're to avoid carrying out discipline in any way that will embarrass our children or, or humiliate them in front of others. That's why I think it's important for parents as, as much as possible to discipline their children in private, not even in the presence of their friends or, or guests in the home and certainly not in the presence of, of strangers. Now, in our uh, home, we have a room that was set aside for discipline when our children uh, were younger, and all the discipline took place in that room behind closed doors, even if the infraction occurred when, when they had friends. 
You can be tested if you are committed to this principle. I remember one time when one of our children was about 18 months old and we were having lunch at the Red Lion Riverside in the coffee shop there. And I asked my child to sit in the booster seat and my child refused. And so I said, if you don't sit in this booster seat, Daddy is going to have to spank you. Do you understand that? Yes. Will you sit in the booster seat? No. So uh, we made our way through all of these tables in this crowded restaurant out till I was able to find an empty stairwell. And there I laid the child down and undid the adhesive on the diaper and exposed the bottom and took care of discipline and patched everything back up, and we wove our way back through the tables. We got back to our table and... I said, will you sit in the booster seat? And uh, the answer was no. Uh, Well, do you understand that if you don't sit in the booster seat, Daddy's going to have to spank you again? Yes. Will you sit in the booster seat? No. So we wove our way through the tables out to this empty stairwell and laid the child down and all the snaps and stuff on those infant clothing. You know, undid the adhesive, bared the bottom, took care of discipline, you know, buttoned everything back up and walked back to the table. And I asked my child, will you sit in the booster seat? No. <laughs> Do you understand that if you don't sit in the booster seat, Daddy is going to have to spank you again? Yes. Will you sit in the booster seat? No. So for the third time, we wove our way through these tables out into the empty stairwell. The adhesive was starting to lose a little bit of its grip uh, by this time. And we took care of discipline and marched our way back through the the, the, the restaurant, and the third time was a charm. Finally, my child was willing to obey his father and sit in that uh, booster seat. But I think it is important that when we exercise discipline, we do it as much as possible in private. Now, Paul says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. The word for warn he uses is the same word that's found in Ephesians 6, 4, when Paul is speaking to fathers about their responsibility to bring their children up in the nurture and the admonition or instruction of the Lord. What Paul is is saying here is that discipline is to take place in the context of ongoing instruction. That discipline is just a small part of a parent's overall task to raise his child to maturity. Moses talks about the same thing in Deuteronomy 6 when he tells parents to take advantage of teachable moments. You know, teach your children about these things when you rise up. In the morning, as you're having breakfast together, as you send your children off to school, use this as an opportunity as, as occasion arises to teach them. As you walk with them on the way, as you're out running errands with your children, doing recreational things together, use this as an opportunity as teachable moments arise to talk to them uh, about spiritual things. Remember a story about one father who was running some errands with his wife and his young daughter, and his wife was in a store running an errand, and the child was sitting next to him on the seat, and And the child said, Daddy, uh, is it true that when you believe in Jesus, he comes to live in your heart? And the father recognized this as a teachable moment and said, Why, yes, sweetheart, that's true, and that's what your daddy has done. I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and when I did, he came to live in my heart. And his daughter, about four years old, said, Well, can I I listen to Jesus in your heart? And the father said, Well, it's okay by me. Never had anybody ask me that before, but why don't you try it? So the daughter kind of sidled over next to him, put her ear up to his chest, and listened for a little while. And the father said, well, what do you hear? She said, well, it sounds like he's making coffee to me. (laughs) And then Moses also says we're to take advantage of teachable moments when you lay down. 
at bedtime when you're tucking your children into bed for the night. Debbie and I have tried to make a, make a point of setting aside 15 minutes in the evening after the children are in bed and the lights are low before they go to sleep. Spend that time with them. We find that they're often willing to open up to us at that time of the day when, when there are things you couldn't drag out of them any other part of the day. So Paul's point is discipline is to be a part of an ongoing context of instruction and training about life, not a thing apart. Now Paul says in verse 16 to his children, I urge you to imitate me. Paul is talking about the way in which he evaluated Christians and Christian leaders specifically. He says, I want you to imitate the way I view ministers and use the standard of evaluation that I am giving you here in this passage of Scripture. But I think that is a fifth principle of discipline, that we as fathers, we as parents, are to live lives that are worthy of imitation. I think it's worthwhile asking ourselves as parents this question, do I want my children to grow up to be just like me. If I am a father, do I want my son to be the kind of father to my grandchildren that I am to him? If you're a mother, do I want my daughter to be the kind of mother for my grandchildren that I am to her? If I'm a father, it's it's worthwhile asking myself this question. What kind of example am I setting for my son about a husband about the way in which a husband loves his wife. Does my son see in my example that I prize my relationship with my wife above all other relationships? Does my son see that I nurture my wife and that I cherish her and that my allegiance and loyalty is to her above all others? Do they see that I love her with a a sacrificial love, that I love her as I love myself? If you're a mother, it's worthwhile asking this question. Does my daughter see in me an example of what it means for a wife to lovingly and willingly submit to the authority and the headship of her husband? Does my daughter see in my example of what it means to treat a husband with honor and respect and admiration? I think it's worthwhile asking this question about the way we deal with anger in our household. Do we discipline our children for certain verbal expressions of anger when we excuse those exact same expressions of anger in ourselves? Now, Paul says in verse 17, what I am doing agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, Paul's point to the Corinthians is that I am consistent in this regard. And that's the sixth principle is that discipline must be consistent, not arbitrary or Capricious. One of the complaints that children can legitimately have about their parents' discipline is that their parents favor one child over the other. This could be particularly true in blended families. I know we've discovered in our household with two children that Debbie and I each tend to be easier on one child and firmer and harder on the other. And we've had a number of emotionally tinged conversations on this subject because one of us tends to favor the other and and therefore protective of that child. That's where parenting as a partnership is a tremendous asset where you can talk about these things so your discipline with each child is fair and consistent. Then Paul says as a seventh principle in verse 19 that the real issue here is, is the issue of power. But Paul recognizes that the Corinthians in their disobedience to his directive were challenging his authority and his control. And that's the seventh principle about discipline. We must realize as parents that when our children willfully disobey us, that there is a challenge to our authority, and that the issue in discipline is this, who is in charge here? 
remember reading a story about a young uh, daughter who was talking to her mother. She'd just been disciplined, was complaining about this, and her mother explained to her, Sweetheart, you need to understand that, that God has given you to me as my child, and he has given me authority over you as your parent. And because I have this authority that God has given to me, I must discipline you. child thought for a minute and said, Mom, how long does it have to be this way? What we need to realize is that's the issue. Every time there is defiance, that's the issue. Who is in control in this household? Who's in charge here? A member of the royal family toured the United States a number of years ago and was asked as he left the country, what what impressed you most about American culture? And he said this, I'm most impressed with the way that parents obey their children. Then Paul says in verse 19 that I am coming to you very soon. I think Paul's point here is that we are not to avoid discipline. We're to deal with it directly and as soon as it is possible to do so. Many parents, I think, will excuse behavior in their young children that if allowed to go unchecked will create enormous problems for them when they are adolescents. And yet the child, because he's fairly impotent and can't really do much damage, the parent can tend to overlook those Behavior patterns, and Paul says, don't, don't do that. Deal with discipline issues when they arise. Verse 21, Paul refers to his use of a whip, or literally a rod. And I think what Paul is suggesting to us here as parents is that there is a place for corporal punishment in discipline. Many child experts say that every form of corporal punishment is, is child abuse. It's simply not true. There are forms of corporal punishment that are child abuse of a parent simply gives vent to his anger and is out of control and uses the corporal punishment as a way of just taking out his frustration on a child. Well, that is child abuse. That is not for the child's best interest. That is for the parent's best interest. So it's important that discipline, when it's administered physically, be done in a way that's measured and and controlled. You know, in our household, we had this room set aside. We kept in that room a spanking spoon, an inanimate object. Paul suggests here again, I think, that parents use an inanimate object to, to, to administer discipline so that a child never sees the hand of a parent raised against him in anger but always extended to him in love. And that spanking spoon was kept on display and it was pulled out of the drawer when it was necessary and we administered five swift whacks on a bare bottom, which is perfect for this task, uh, with, a, with a wooden spoon. It just stung. No pain, no bleeding, no welts, no bruises, but it stung and it got the point across. My kids used to hate it when Debbie would spank them because she always spaced them out. You know, it'd be whack, and then there would be this this pregnant, ominous pause and and whack. You know, I was kind of more of the submachine gun approach, just kind of rat tat 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 and get it done with. But it's important that corporal discipline be administered when children are young, especially, but that it be done in a way that is controlled. As James Dobson suggests, that corporal punishment should diminish by the time a child reaches the ages of eight through twelve. Other forms of discipline then become more appropriate. And, and more effective, but there is a place for this in early childhood. And then the tenth principle is found in verse 21 when Paul says, what do you prefer? He says to the Corinthians, it is really your choice. In other words, what Paul says, what I will discipline you for is for willful disobedience and for defiance. This was a young church, an immature church, and Paul was not going to discipline them for childish irresponsibility. And that's an important lesson for parents to learn, not to discipline our children for childish irresponsibility. They do things that are aggravating and and irritating simply because they are children. They will spill things and forget things and knock things over. Saw a bib this past week said spit happens. You know, and it and it does. 
And so we, we have worked hard in our household to be sure that we discipline only for willful disobedience and not for childish irresponsibility. And it's working well. I know that since Debbie's learned to make this distinction, I've certainly gotten in a lot less uh, trouble. <laughs> but Paul says, make sure that your child has a clear choice in the matter. The choice is up to them, that they know exactly what the consequences are if they refuse to, to respond to the authority of their parents. And I think if we will listen to Paul's example and, and learn from his example, we will be able to more effectively do what he instructs us to do as fathers in Ephesians 6, 4, to raise our children, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Uh, let's pray together, and then we will allow Celebrate to introduce us into our time of communion together. Dear Heavenly Father, I do at this moment want to pray specifically for every father in this room. Uh, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would bless them in their role as, as parents and as fathers, especially to young children. They pray for the mothers of young children that are in this room, that they will learn from the example of Paul and that together these partnerships in parenting that are represented in this room would grow in maturity. You'd give them skill and wisdom and discernment in raising their children to, to maturity in you. I pray for each father and mother in this room whose children have been raised and are now in a position to provide help and counsel and encouragement to younger fathers and younger mothers. I ask that your Holy Spirit would bless them for this task and give them wisdom, give them opportunities to share from their experience the things that you have taught them about raising children and loving them and growing them to maturity. I pray that you would form many links in our fellowship between younger women and and older women experienced mothers and between younger fathers and older experienced fathers that the wisdom of the generations might be transmitted and passed on from one generation to the next. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to bless our families. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on them, that our families might be characterized by love and harmony and peace and discipline where it is necessary and and where it is appropriate. We ask that you would turn the hearts of the fathers in this room back to their children, turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers. These things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.